right. Remain standing for just a moment, um, and we will recite together our memory verse for this month, 1 John 4, 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, So, now that we are live, and Grace is probably watching um, online, Grace, we love you, we wish that you were here, Um, it's not the same without you, so rest up, and hopefully we'll see you soon. Um, So, tomorrow is Valentine's Day, and uh, we're all pumped about that, we're all excited, Um, so tonight's message will be about love, aww. Uh, Next week, we'll be starting a brand new series. Uh, We just finished, of course, our series through the Book of Lamentations, and it was heavy, right? It was was, uh, sad at times. It was emotional. It was uh, was a lot. And so, in, uh, in, in response to that, our next series is going to go to the other side of the spectrum, and we're going to be looking at feasts in the Old Testament, and how... The feasts of the Israelites um, points us to the gospel. And so we're going to go from lamenting to feasting. Uh, that's the plan. Um, and tonight we'll start with a feast after, uh, after, we're, uh, after we're finished here. We'll have the Super Bowl on the big screen, and, uh, and it's going to be a good time. Um, so one day I was on my way to church, and an interesting song came on the radio. You, know, you can go ahead and bring the lights up there, buddy. Um, An interesting song came on the radio. Um, In case you haven't figured it out by now, I'm one of those sinner Christians that doesn't just listen to K-Love. We were listening to normal radio, like heathens. Um, So, as we were driving, um, Adele came on the radio. Specifically, her song, Remedy. And that was a track on her 2015 album, 25. And as I listened to this song, the lyrics were especially striking. Now, you guys know that Adele's voice is absolutely incredible, and so she can make anything sound striking. She could sing about algebra, and it would go platinum. Um, But what she said in this song struck me because it so perfectly illustrates a mindset that is prevalent in our culture, and that is the belief that love can save us. So listen to the words of this song. I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. Uh, She says, I remember all of the things that I wanted to be, so desperate to find a way out of my world and finally breathe. Right before my eyes, I saw that my heart came to life. This ain't easy. It's not meant to be. Every story has its scars. But when the pain cuts you deep, when the night keeps you from sleeping, just look and you will see that I will be your remedy. When the world seems so cruel and your heart makes you feel like a fool, I promise you will see that I will be, I will be your remedy. No river is too wide or too deep for me to swim to you. Come whatever, I'll be the shelter that won't let the rain come through. Your love, it is my truth, and I will always love you. And the chorus repeats again, and she talks about being the remedy. Now, all of you, of course, are far more cultured than I am, and so you'll know that um, 
this song isn't about a typical love story. This is not an ordinary love song. This is actually a song that she wrote for her then three-year-old son, Angelo. And so the song isn't actually about romantic love. It's about the love of a parent. She's saying to her son, I will rescue you from the pain of the world. I'll be your remedy when you're hurt. So I am aware of the meaning of this particular song, and it's something that I'm going to come back to. Now, the thing is, I didn't know when I listened to the song what it was truly about. It wasn't until I researched the song afterwards that I figured out that this was a a love of a parent. But it would not have surprised me in the least if it was just a typical love song because the tone of this song is so similar to songs that you would hear on the radio all day long with the same sort of a theme. It could easily be confused for songs like Fix You by Coldplay, where Chris Martin sings, When tears are streaming down your face because you lose something you can't replace, I will try to fix you. Or let's go way back to uh, my day, Guardian Angel by Red Red Jumpsuit Apparatus. Anyone? Anyone? No? Which promises... I will never let you fall. I'll stand up with you forever. I'll be there for you through it all, even if saving you sends me to heaven. Or we could go back even further to the Beatles, who tried to make us believe that all you need is love. We could name song after song after song, in genre after genre after genre, that teach us the very same message. And that is that the one thing that you're missing the one thing that you will be satisfied by, the one thing that will save you is romantic love. The fact is there is a sort of cultural expectation that the thing that will satisfy the deepest longing of our souls is the romantic love of a partner. And so whether we realize it or not, we believe by default that each person by themselves is an incomplete half who will not be completed until we find our other half, at which point we can look at them like Jerry Maguire and say, you complete me. You complete me. Every one of us has battled with loneliness, with self-esteem, with self-doubt, And many of us have bought into the not-so-subtle message that someone is going to come along and take those feelings away from us. When that person comes, I'll no longer feel this way. We've seen all of the endless romantic comedies promising us that when we finally find that one person, life may not get easier all of a sudden, but we'll then finally be able to experience it at its fullest. Now, um, I know that you guys know where this is going, okay? You've been here long enough. You know that I am about to start down a path of marriage and romance is not going to satisfy you, right? And you guys have seen the wonderful marriage that me and my wife share. My wife is the greatest. Um, last night we were able to go on this fancy schmancy date and have a great time together. Thank you, Dan and Nicole, if you're watching. Thank you for taking our kids so that we could um, go on an awesome date. I wouldn't trade my wife for anyone in the world. She is the absolute best. She's back there with my screaming baby, um, trying to keep her happy. 
Um, and so as I'm saying stuff like, listen, your spouse will never make you happy. You guys know that it's not because I don't have a great spouse. I have the best spouse, right? But love, this idea of love being what saves you is in and of itself a tainted idea. It is a poisonous notion. It is a gift from God, which we're going to see. Love and romance is a gift from God. But so often what we do is we take gifts from God and we make them idols. We take things that God has given us to enjoy and we pretend that those things are going to bring us ultimate fulfillment. But if we try to find our ultimate fulfillment in these things, it rots from the inside out. And so, though marriage is one of the greatest gifts that God can give, he did not give us marriage in order to complete us. He did not give us marriage in order that we can be finally satisfied and fulfilled. He gave it to us in order to give us an even deeper understanding of him and the gospel. So, we're going to go to a, a couple of different places today. But the first is Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be behind me on the screen. Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, depending on your translation, verses 1 through 16. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. With all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. <clears throat> so, anyone else uh, sweating? 
uh, things got real heavy real fast there. So let's give a little bit of a background. This is the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs is one of three books in the Old Testament that can be attributed at least in part to King Solomon, son of David. The other two, of course, are Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. This book was written most likely in the early life of Solomon, and it's a collection of love poems written back and forth between Solomon and his bride, a woman who we only know as the Shulamite. Now, Various approaches are taken to the book of Song of Solomon. According to some, the book is to be taken in its entirety as an allegory. An allegory specifically of the relationship between God and Israel. The second approach views Song of Solomon as being typological of the relationship between Christ and the church. So, very similar to the first approach, it's that the church replaces Israel. The third approach is the literal or historical approach, which views this as being what it seems like it is, a a love poem between two lovers. Now, admittedly, there is some merit to the typological and allegorical approaches. And ultimately, of course, the entire Bible is about God and the love of Christ and his relationship with us. That is present on every page. That is the underlying meaning behind every passage. It teaches us About Jesus. But as we've studied before, there's also a primary uh, topic for every passage, the one which the original readers would have taken from the book. And to me, out of those approaches, the one that makes the most sense is the historical approach, right? Maybe if we stopped at verse 1, where he says, You are beautiful, my love, I could be convinced that this is a typological or allegorical passage. Uh, But it's hard to take verse 5 in the same way. Uh, That one seems to be straightforward. Um, Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. I don't immediately see any type of allegorical approach to a verse like that. That one seems pretty literal. Okay, that one's pretty straightforward. I think it's abundantly clear that the original intent of the author, Solomon, is to write a rapturous love song. For his bride. Okay, this right here, what we have, is the ancient version of a Marvin Gaye song. This is Israeli R&B, okay? This is Hebrew R&B, okay? This is Brian McKnight. Y'all kids don't know nothing about Brian McKnight, okay? Back at one. This is back at one. Hebrew version. One, like a dream come true. Two, just want to be with you. That's what this is, right? This is back at one, except he uses some different lyrics. He says things like, One, your eyes are doves behind a veil. Two, you have some twin gazelles. Three, girl, it's plain to see. Your hair is like some goats that leave. Okay, give me a hand. Come on. Thank you. All this to say, okay, Solomon is enraptured, completely enraptured by his bride. And he makes that very clear. So, let's start there. Here's point number one. Point number one, romance is an exhilarating gift. It is absolutely an exhilarating gift. 
Before we get into the tainted side of things, let's start by establishing that very important truth, something that may not be emphasized nearly enough in the church, and that is that pure romantic love is a gift from God, and it is not boring. I think people sometimes have the wrong idea. Perhaps Christians admit that marriage and romance and sex were God's idea in the first place. But I I think that we'll all agree that the perception that many people have is that the Christian idea of romance isn't nearly as exciting as what you would find in secular society. That's where you get the good stuff, right? Christianity will give you fireproof, but it won't give you Fifty Shades of Grey. And, And that's what you need, Right? That, that's what people think. But that is not the message of Scripture. When we approach the Bible to understand it, one of the questions that we have to ask of every passage is, why did God include this in the Bible? Because there are so many things that he could have included in the Scriptures. So many things that we wish he would have included, right? So many things that we think to ourselves, that, that, that we ask questions and we go, God, why didn't you write anything about that? Okay, there's a, a limited number of pages in the Bible. And so when we find something in Scripture, it was important enough to put there. God was selective in the things that he chose. And so when we, have, when we come to a passage, we have to ask, okay, why this? What essential truths is God trying to communicate with this? And I think that just one of those truths that he's communicating to us is that romance in marriage is not meant to be mechanical, puritanical, boring. It's not not second rate. It's not something that you have to settle for because it isn't nearly as good as the completely unrealistic novel. It is meant to be adventurous and rapturous and exciting my wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. She, she excites me. I, I did not settle to be with her, okay? There was, I, I, I have to be honest with you, okay? Don't use this, all right? This, this is do as I say, not as I do, all right? When I was at Liberty, in seminary and in undergrad, there was a term that we used, Okay? And this term was a pejorative term, okay? It it was an insult, but it was a coded insult, okay? There were certain girls that we referred to as prayer warriors. Those were the girls that were like, okay, they don't look that good, but they're spiritual, okay? She's, She's a prayer warrior. Again, that's wrong, all right? Don't, don't use that. My wife is not a prayer warrior in that sense she's a prayer warrior in the best sense in that she actually prays like a warrior but she's also the most beautiful woman in the world i have to move on this is getting bad uh when we read song of solomon one of the things that we see obviously is that there's a great deal of symbolism right as with any kind of poem There's flowery language that's used to illustrate things. And the thing is, in our modern understanding, most of the metaphors that are used in this book are lost on us. Taken at face value, Solomon and his bride say some very odd things to each other. In a later chapter, Solomon says that her nose is like a tower and that her belly is like a heap of wheat. In other places, her legs are compared to cedar trees. Her hair is a flock of goats. 
her teeth are like sheep, and her eyes are like doves. These are, of course, things that we would never say today, right? If I told my wife that her belly was like a heap of wheat, she would punch me in the face, right? If I was ever trying to use this version of a pickup line today, like, what's up, girl? I see you over there. I, hey, girl, you with the baby. Yeah, you. Uh-huh. Girl, your belly like a heap of wheat. What's up? Let me get some of that whole grain. We would never do that, okay? In other places in the book, these metaphors are used to describe specific sexual actions, which I won't get into now. But suffice it to say that if the book was written in plain English, in a way that we would understand today, we would read it and then look at the cover to make sure we were still in the Bible. The language of poetry, though, is used to communicate that message without being lascivious. And I want to emphasize, as I say that, that this is not a book that was ever meant to be read like smut, like a cheap romance novel, to induce lust in that way. It was written to celebrate the union of marriage that God created, to show that it was always meant to be filled with this kind of romance and and fulfillment. It was written to show that the best and most satisfying kind of love is not found in the brothel, but rather in the bridal suite. And that's where we need to start. That what God designed for us is not second rate. Now, regardless of your relationship status, there's, there's much more to be said. You may be single and looking forward to something like this. You may be married and enjoying this. You may be married and saying, my marriage isn't anything like this. But no matter where we are, it's important that we don't stop there. Because if we did, then we might be tempted to make this same mistake that the world does saying that this is the kind of marriage that will ultimately fulfill you. So let's take a look at another passage written by the same guy later on in life. One book back, Ecclesiastes, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Bubbles, as we talked about before. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams return to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a such thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Then in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? 
I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was bubbles, striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Talk about a left turn. This book, Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, happens later on in his life, looking back on his reign in Jerusalem. And the contrast between these passages is stark, right? In the first passage, we have a young Solomon, completely head over heels in love, enraptured with all the beauty of his bride, and he's writing ancient R&B. Now, in Ecclesiastes, we find an older Solomon looking back on his life and lamenting, all is vanity, all is empty, all is chasing after the wind. What happened? How in the world did he get here? He had the romance that we all dream of, that that all the movies are about. He had it. He was the protagonist in the sacred, hot and heavy love story. Now he's an old man wistfully looking back over a life that did not satisfy like it was supposed to. So what's going on? Here's point number two. Romance, no matter how exhilarating, is not ultimate. It is not ultimate. More than anyone else, Solomon had it all. He had it all. He had more money than anyone, more knowledge, more wisdom, more success, more power, more influence, more sex, more accomplishments, more power, more pleasure than anyone ever. It's estimated that Solomon's net worth was north of 20 or north of two trillion dollars. Okay, that's 20 Bill Gates. And this belief that we have that all I need is fill in the blank, and I'll be happy. This guy says, I had more of all of that than anyone. And yet, he says, all is vanity. Now, that doesn't answer for us the question of what happened between Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. How did he go from having this incredible, breathtaking romance to having over 700 wives and 300 concubines? Well, on the one hand, okay, we make the argument that a lot of these wives were political marriages, right? One of the, the customs of the day was that any time a kingdom was conquered by another, a peace treaty could be written. And as a part of that peace treaty, the conquered king may give his daughter in marriage to the conquering king. 
forming a political alliance. So if a king conquered a hundred kingdoms, conceivably he could have a hundred wives from those conquests. And it was likely that many of his wives were political marriages. But even if we said all 700 of his wives were political marriages, there's still the 300 concubines. Concubines were more or less just trophy wives. They they didn't have the same rights as the normal wives. Mainly, they were just present for sex. So this 300 women was Solomon's harem. The fact is, we don't know exactly what transpired between the writing of Song of Solomon and, and, and Solomon's downfall. But obviously something went terribly wrong. And I believe that part of what went wrong was that a good thing became a God thing. Any gift that God gives us, any good thing can be turned into an idol. And when it is, it loses its power to be enjoyed the way that God intended. Solomon married the love of his life and And he has this incredible, powerful love story in Song of Solomon. But at some point, Solomon decides that he needs more. One romance is not enough. I need another one. And another. And another. And another. And hundreds more. The same could be said if we idolize money, right? Money is not in and of itself bad. Money is a good thing. It's a resource. But money can so easily be turned into an idol. And when it is, no dollar amount is enough. Whatever target we have, well, well, as soon as I make six figures, I'll be happy. Well, then as soon as you reach 100K, you need to get to 200K. And, and then the finish line moves to half a mil. But then you get to half a mil and you realize, I need to be a millionaire and then I'll be happy. And on and on it goes. You, you just keep running after a carrot that you never catch. Solomon had this incredible romance, but, but what's abundantly clear is that it wasn't enough. If his romance, in all of its poetic brilliance, was enough to satisfy, he wouldn't have chased after anything else. And what we find in the life of Solomon is a man who's chasing after every pleasure in every conceivable way and never finding it in anything. Not even in the most incredible romance in history. Like if, if you ever watch a, an action movie that has sequels, You ever notice how in the first movie, the two main characters have this absolutely incredible romance, right? It's perfect. It's passionate, and it's just, it's meant to be. The the two characters, they, they battle through whatever crazy plot they're in the middle of, and they end up together just like they should, and then the credits roll. And, and, and you walk home, and you're like, man, I need a romance like that. But then the sequel comes out, And those two aren't even together anymore. And you're like, what happened after the credits rolled on the last movie? And the writers always have to come up with some crazy reason why these two perfect people aren't together. Sometimes to just bring them back together in the second movie and on and on. And they have this up and down thing. Or they have to be with somebody else. That's kind of like what we find between Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. We're like, what happened after the credits rolled? Well, what happened is that Solomon took a good thing and he made it a God thing. It became an idol in his life. And look at the result that we find in 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11 verses 1 through 11 says this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women 
along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall never enter into a marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on a mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was very angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, And it commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. What was given to God, what was given to Solomon by God as a gift became a curse. Now, I'm willing to bet that no one here is married to a thousand people. Probably no one here is married to more than one. So, you might be thinking, I won't make that mistake. One spouse is enough. I don't have to fight with more than one person for blankets at night. That's plenty. But what I want you to understand is that even if you stay faithful to your one spouse your entire life, Even then, your marriage will never be ultimate. If you try to place the pressure of satisfaction and fulfillment upon your marriage, you and your spouse both will be crushed under the weight of an expectation that neither of you can carry. You see, marriage and romance were never, ever intended to be a destination in and of itself. It was never intended to be a place that we arrive finally satisfied and fulfilled. It was never meant to be about us in the first place. From the very beginning, marriage has always been about God. In Genesis 2, we find that God created Adam and Eve, male and female, both in his image. Genesis 1, I'm sorry. Male and female, so different yet so equally created in the image of God. God reflecting his image differently in both. And then when they come together in a covenantal relationship, they form a complete picture of who he is. And so in Genesis, God takes Adam and Eve and he brings them together. And his first command is to, uh, to multiply the image across the face of the earth. Their marriage was not primarily about their own romance, nor was it primarily about their friendship, their sexual enjoyment, their companionship, or or anything else. Those things came as a benefit of marriage. But those things were not the purpose. The, The purpose was to spread the image of God. The gift of marriage can only be enjoyed when it's put in its proper place. So let's turn to Ephesians 5. And see what the Apostle Paul says about marriage. Ephesians 5, verses 22 
Ephesians 5, beginning verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as, the, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here's point number three. Romance has always been about Jesus. Romance has always been about Jesus. In this passage, we find perhaps the clearest message about what marriage is truly about. Marriage is a symbol. Marriage is an allegory. Marriage is what I have always called an experiential analogy, an analogy that we experience, like, like parenthood, right? Parenthood is an experiential analogy. I've told you guys before what happened in my heart when Eli was born. When Eli was born, prior to that day, I intellectually understood completely all of the passages that tell us that God loves us like a father loves his children, right? I read that, and I'm like, yeah, I get that. Like a father loves his children. Those verses made sense to me. I had a dad, and he loved me, and I'm like, okay, I get it. But on the day that I held that little chicken nugget in my arms for the very first time, And I'm looking down into his eyes, something unlocked in my heart that had never been there before. That I had no idea was there. I I experienced a love that I never thought possible. And in that moment, all of a sudden, it was like a light bulb went off. And it was like, oh, this is what it means. That God loves us the way a father loves his child. Because now I can feel this small piece of what God feels for me. Parenthood is an experiential analogy. Marriage, according to this text, is the same way. Marriage is a symbol of the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is a covenant between two lovers who devote themselves entirely to one another. In marriage, we are fully known. We are fully open. We are exposed with nothing held back or hidden. We're committed to the point of death. And in the same way God covenanted with us, inviting us into an eternal relationship in which we are fully known and we are fully loved. In which he knows everything there is to know about us. There is nothing hidden. And yet he loves us anyway. And it's in that love that he sent his son to die for us in order to redeem us from our sins. As it turns out, Adele was on to something. Adele was on to something when she wrote the song Remedy. In this song that she wrote for her child, she sings that her love will rescue him from his pain. And that is how our father loves us. But unlike Adele, he will actually be able to keep that promise. Adele, no matter how much she loves her son Angelo, and I'm sure she does, she cannot possibly live up to the words that she is singing. She cannot protect him. She cannot save him. 
as badly as she wants to, as badly as I want to, she's unable. I can identify with that. I can't tell you how badly I want to protect my kids from every pain in the world. But I can't. And you can't either. But God can. God actually can sing over us when the pain cuts you deep and the night keeps you from sleeping. Just look and see that I will be your remedy. No river is too wide or too deep for me to swim to you. Not even the river of death itself. Come whatever, I will be the shelter that covers you from the rain. My love is my truth. And no matter what, I will be your remedy. That is what is meant to satisfy us. Yes, love is the ultimate source of fulfillment, but not Valentine's Day love. Yes, love will complete us, but not because we find a soulmate. Yes, love will rescue us from loneliness, but not because we have somebody to cuddle with. The love of God is the living water that fills the broken cracks of our hearts and brings us to life. And it is only when we look to heaven that we can be happy. But not only that, when we look to heaven for joy instead of looking to our spouse for joy, it's at that point that we can enjoy the gifts that he gives. So here's our final point. In its context, romance can be fully enjoyed as God intended. There is a way to have a happy marriage. The way to have a happy marriage is not to look to marriage to make you happy. When you recognize it for what it is, and that is a gift from God, not a path to fulfillment, it's at that point that you can truly enjoy it as it was meant to be enjoyed. It was meant to be filled with passion and pleasure. It just wasn't meant to be treated as ultimate. When it's treated as ultimate, it loses its ability to give us the enjoyment that God intended for it to give us. But when we put it in its proper place, here's what we get. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart. I'm sorry, I can't. I, I don't have the maturity to not do that, okay? <laughs> Eli's like, dude. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Notice that he says here that this love is the very flame of the Lord. The very flame of the Lord. When he is the one that satisfies us, the fire of love that burns in our hearts for our spouses is one that he sets ablaze. And because he sets that fire in the right place, it won't burn us. My wife does not bear the burden of my satisfaction. It is not up to her to make me happy. It's not up to me to make her happy. Thank goodness. It's not up to either of us to fulfill each other, to give each other the sense of 
completion and, and oneness that our hearts need, we find those things in the Lord. And, and when we do that, you know what that frees us up to do? What it frees me to do? What it frees my wife to do? Enjoy one another. To just enjoy each other. To support each other. To be each other's companion. Free from the crushing weight of being each other's savior. And that, my friends, is a promise for every single one of us. Whether you're single, happily married, unhappily married, or anywhere else on the spectrum, the love of a savior is what will satisfy us. And when it satisfies, it sure comes along with some pretty great gifts. So, here's what we're going to do. Typically, we would have a closing song uh, with, with Grace leading us. Uh, we're not going to do that. Um, I'm going to pray us out. And, uh, and then we're going to have some food and watch the game and, and enjoy one another's company. But my encouragement to each one of you, as you celebrate Valentine's Day tomorrow, and please do, if you are you know, in a relationship, please do celebrate the love that you have for each other. But as you do, remember that it is not that love that satisfies. And if you are single and don't have that, or, or you are with someone and don't have that, don't place your hope in it. And don't let be tomorrow be the day that reminds you of what you don't have, because there is nothing that prevents you from having what you need. And that's the love of Jesus. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Love that satisfies, love that saves. God, I pray that if there's anyone here, anyone watching right now on the live stream or or listening on the podcast that has never experienced the love of the Savior, God, I pray that tonight your spirit would call them to yourself, that, that they would experience that love by surrendering to Jesus, knowing that he loved them so much that he would give his life for them. God, bring them to a place of surrender where they say, take my life and fill my heart with the, the one love that can, that, that can satisfy. Lord, for every one of us, as we try to find our worth, our, our fulfillment, our joy in so many different things, God, I pray that you would bring each one of us back to center tonight. Bring us back to the cross. And let us go out of this place with a cross-centered view, living our lives, every decision that we make with that cross-centered view. And that other people around us will see and want it for themselves. Let us be ambassadors of the perfect love of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would help us to remember that the mission starts after church. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's dig in. <laughs> Thank you, son. Got applause. <laughs>